My name's Nick. I'm the associate minister here at Knox. And I forgot to mention at the baptism that if you would like to welcome Sylvia and Ezra um, to our family, to our community here, um, that's really awesome. You should do that. And the best place to do that is in the Winchester room behind the organ here where their family will be hosting a bit of a reception. And I'm told there is tons of food. So if you're comfortable being in a room with food and other people, please do join them after the service for that reception. Um, all are welcome. And I hope that you've had a good summer. Whether you've had a chance to travel or enjoy some long weekends out of the city or maybe just the slower pace that summer life can often bring. It feels like we're now at the first peak at the beginning of a roller coaster. The course is set and this weekend is one last deep breath before we experience all that is to come in the season and the year ahead. It's only just barely September, and yet many of us will blink and be preparing our Thanksgiving meals. Another moment and Halloween and Remembrance Day will pass us by, and before we realize it, the deep plunge of winter and whatever Christmas may look like for us all this year. Some students among us have only just moved onto campus and soon they'll go from introductory classes where the syllabus will be reviewed to midterms. And if they're a student at U of T, there will be much weeping over the results of those midterms. And then there will be nothing but preparation for finals and the end of the fall semester. In all of this, there will likely be much talk about work-life balance and about how that constantly seems to elude us. Because not only will major milestones of the year pass us by, but the tiresome pattern of day in and day out will, for most of us, occupy all of our waking hours. Work from home for many has offered a hope of a better balance over the last couple of years. But not all of us have jobs that can be done remotely. And many employers are calling their workers back to the office for more and more days each week. This summer, at least in recent weeks, there has been a flurry of conversation about something called quiet quitting as well. And quiet quitting might be familiar to some of us by other names. In a union setting, work to rule. And otherwise, I would say, just doing your job. This is the idea of punching in and punching out, not bringing your work home with you, not going above and beyond, not being pressured by employer or client to do more than what one is paid for. The relationship that people have with their work is being renegotiated in our culture, and it's good for us to be paying attention. On this Labor Day weekend, before the plunge of September, before the fullness of church life takes us over here and our vision series begins and Mission Sunday will soon be upon us, we have an opportunity to consider what God says about our work. And in a culture where work is so much of our time, where the politics of the workplace more often than not becomes the conversation of the public sphere, and where too many of us are defined first and foremost by the kind of work which we do, this is certainly an important topic. This conversation about work-life balance, about quiet quitting, about working to live rather than living to work is by no means a new one. We're not the first to notice these things and we certainly won't be the last. Today we heard a reading from the book of Ecclesiastes 
and in it we receive the reflections of the teacher. The teacher is ever a keen observer of the world and of his time. And he considers work. He thinks upon toil and achievement. And he determines that it all springs from one person's envy of another. Perhaps we today would be hesitant to agree that all toil and all achievement springs from envy of another. Surely there must be someone among us who enjoys their work, whose toil and achievement is for the purpose not of bettering their own life, but, or besting another rather, but simply to contribute to a better world. Yet when we look at our city and the values which we often accept unquestioningly, we can see that the teacher's comment doesn't feel very far out of place at all in Toronto or in the 21st century. Is the extreme of this observation not in fact the basis of our whole economic system? Capitalism supposes that competition is and is always the best way to solve nearly every sort of economic woe. Is your business not doing well? Well, you should simply make a better product or provide a better service than the competition. Are you unable to retain the caliber of workers that you need in your industry? Well, then you should offer better pay or better benefits than the other roles that are being offered. Are you not earning what you need to live the life that you desire to live? Well, then you should simply work harder than anyone else. The notion of hard work being enough to get ahead is at the bedrock of the American, and I would say North American, mentality. Barack Obama posited a form of the American dream in this way. If you work hard and you meet your responsibilities, you can get ahead, no matter where you come from, what you look like, or who you love. If you work hard, you can get ahead. This is the thing that we're told and many of us believe. And I wonder ahead of who, if not ahead of our neighbors. This constant competitive mindset is the way of our world today. And at its core is a lie. This claim is simply not true. There are so many who work tirelessly to put food on the table and they do not get ahead. They never seem to have enough. There are many who are ahead and yet never stop working, never enjoy what they have. All this toil, all this achievement is caused by a competition with one's neighbor rather than a care for them and for their needs. We're still, we live in a city where the cost of living rises far exceeding wages. Average rents in Toronto are up 25% from last year, and I certainly don't need to tell you that wages are not. It's no wonder then that having a side hustle is lauded, and being an entrepreneur is expected just to make ends meet. Yet is this not the fruit of greed and competition? As those who can work more to earn more and push themselves ahead of the pack. As those with property seek even greater returns to improve their lifestyles. This too is meaningless. A chasing after the wind, the teacher says. So is all work meaningless? No, 
The teacher is quick to correct us. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. To fold one's hands is an image of rest. Fools reject work and more than ruin themselves. The literal translation of the text uses the image of eating one's own flesh. They produce nothing, and so they have nothing to live off of. Work remains necessary for life. So then rest must be evil. That must be the problem. Competition is really the good of the world. Also, no. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Refusing to work is foolishness, the teacher says. But to work for the sake of having more is chasing after the wind. It seems after all these thousands of years, we're still seeking that work-life balance which the teacher in Ecclesiastes is advocating. He sees the toil of people's lives, the way that jealousy and yearning for more than one has leaves people feeling empty and wanting, and he rightly says that this is meaningless, vain, hopeless. He advocates not for the end of work, but for the end of toilsome work, for the end of meaningless labor in the pursuit of something which will never be achieved, which will never be realized. He believes in a kind of work which gives us enough to enjoy life, but not so much that we never enjoy anything at all. This is the vision that he has in the next section of our passage. A man all alone, without son or brother, working himself to the bone, no end to his toil. But neither is he content with all that he had. There are many wealthy people, some of whom are listening even now, who this certainly describes. They have all the trappings of a happy life, but are miserable in their work, always accumulating more and more. This man realizes his state, and he asks himself, for whom am I toiling, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? For whom are you toiling? Are you toiling for another's wealth and satisfaction? Are you perhaps in school to get that high-paying job at the other side and to achieve more than your parents did? Are you toiling to keep up with the lifestyles of your neighbors, to attain the next requirement for what we all agree is an objectively happy and successful life? If so, you will not find it. We will never find it. Our toil will be meaningless, says the teacher. Or are you working to provide for yourself and your family? Do you happen to know when enough is really enough? When one handful will do, even if there is the offer of two? Are you able to enjoy the pleasures of life and let work stay at the office? To turn off your phone? To not accept every additional shift which is offered? to take the job that will pay less but is still enough and seems like more meaningful work. This is a good return for your labor. Good and godly work is always ultimately about relationships. It's about having something to share with others who are in need. 
about having skills that we can use to serve another, about providing for family and friend, church and community, and knowing that if sometime we come up short, that there's somebody else who will help us too. This is why we're always striving for two handfuls out of fear of the rainy day. We're convinced that it's okay for us to help others who may rely on us. But we've been trained, perhaps even brainwashed, to never rely on or expect the help of another. We believe that we have to be self-dependent and self-sufficient. The trouble is this causes us to hoard up for ourselves. And we seldom are the help to others, which we ought to be. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. What is this return? That if either of them falls, one can help the other up. If either of them falls, mutual help is a healthy relationship with each other. And choosing to be satisfied with one handful when we could have two is an important step toward giving help to others in need. If we're busy working all the time and attaining all that we can attain, how will we ever have time to help another? If we're accumulating all that we can with all of our time, what is there for us to enjoy? If our seeking to get ahead pushes another person down, how are we any better than those who exploit and manipulate us. This is the heart of the teacher's understanding, and it's encapsulated in this proverb, better a little with righteousness than large income with injustice. The toiling out of jealousy, the working hard to get ahead, the competition which drives us beyond enjoyment into harming our neighbors, all of this is a fruit of injustice in our world, and it's meaningless. It's meaningless not because it doesn't affect people's lives. It does affect people's lives. But it's meaningless because one day God will set all things right. One day all of this toiling for more and more will be undone, and people's amassed wealth will rust and rot and be eaten away. Yes, all this vanity of meaningless toil will one day pass away. No longer will one sow and another reap. No longer will good trees bear bad fruit. And no longer will we labor by the sweat of our brow for that which does not satisfy. All of this has been overcome in the work of God and will be fully realized when the kingdom is completely revealed. Indeed, one day we will labor only for that which bears fruit, work only in the worship of our God, and be occupied only by those things which bring life to us and life to our world. This was the purpose of Christ's very work, who lived, died, rose, and is ascended, that we might no longer see others as competition for us to overcome, no longer see them as people whose lives inspire our jealousy, but to see them now as fellow children of God, whose good is our good. In Christ, we receive the work of one who understood rest and submitted to toil 
whose labors have brought us peace, and by whose wounds we know the help of a friend, and in whom none of our labors are ever in vain. It is a hallmark of the Reformed tradition of the Church that we say our work is our worship, and rightly so. Whatever we do, we should do for the glory of God. But the teacher reminds us today that we do not worship our work. Our work is but a means to an end, and that end is the purpose for which we were made, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If our work takes all of our time and all of our energy, we neglect the worshipful actions of caring for each other, of helping another when they fall. And equally, we neglect the worshipful act of rest which God leads us in, that we might find true life. On this Labor Day weekend, before fall begins and everything that you know is coming for you comes for you, let us remember the moderating words of the teacher in Ecclesiastes. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after wind. Let us not toil in our labors, but be diligent as to the Lord in both work and rest. And let us remember the work which Christ Jesus did, such that, none of our, uh, such that none of us labors alone, and none of us labors in vain. For we have been adopted by his Father and promised the provision of his heavenly kingdom. In our lives and by our prayers, may that kingdom come. Amen. The reflection time today, perhaps you have thoughts you already want to linger on, things you already want to pray about. But if you don't, a couple of prompts which might uh, direct you. Uh, the first is, how does your work prevent you from caring for your neighbor? Are there ways that your work has stopped you from doing what God may be calling you to do? And secondly, how do you or how will you know when enough is enough? And you should rest and enjoy what God has given to you. How will you find that one handful with tranquility, even with the temptation of two handfuls with toil? So you can reflect on these things. You can pray about these things. You can make some notes to journal through the week. If you're at home, you can discuss them with the people near to you. And in a couple of minutes, we'll prepare for the Lord's table. Take this time.